Uh, I want you to turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. It's a very well-known passage. It's a very well-known chapter of the Bible. But what I hope that it's, it's, it's the fact that it's well-known, I hope will not mean that you will be complacent as we uh, open up this passage and look at it. What I want you today to be uh, in church uh, and also in your Christian life and as a Christian, I want you to be shocked. I want you to be surprised. I want you to be amazed at Jesus Christ. Because that really should be the reality probably uh, every day for us uh, as we learn new things about Jesus Christ. Because of who God is, we should be shocked, surprised, and amazed by Him. And uh, this sermon, for example, was murder to prepare. Uh, It was wrought in blood and sweat and tears, with struggle and doubt, and not a great deal of prayer earlier on. Great struggle and a battle. And God sometimes does that. And maybe that shocked you. I hope it has. Because I think sometimes you'll come to church and uh, you'll think, and maybe as ministers we think, that we just kind of open the Bible and uh, we think a few thoughts. And there's a few ministers here in the congregation, so they'll have sympathy with me here. Uh, And uh, we'll just teach the Bible and it's just like a lesson and we go home and we carry on with our lives. But sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes it's like a battle of life and death. And there's a real struggle going on to understand what Jesus is saying and what the Bible's about. And it's really hard and really difficult. And what I want you to think about and consider today is the same thing about the way you listen and the way that we think of Jesus Christ. And maybe you've come today, church, same old, same old. You know, we'll be here for an hour, we'll stand at the same the sermon will go on and then it can finish and go home. And everything will just be carry on as normal. There may be for us absolutely no sense of expectancy that God will do anything, that God will speak to me, that I'll learn anything new, and certainly that I don't expect to be shocked, surprised, or amazed by what I find out about God. I know this passage. It's a well-known passage. Nothing new about Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. That kind of thing. And uh, we make, we, we sometimes, and I'm speaking personally, and that's why there was such battle this week, uh, we, we shrink God down to something that's so small that there is no sense of expectation for us. We're sitting on comfortable seats. We're sitting beside our friends. We love the social intercourse of church. And we'll say goodbye to people and we'll welcome other people. But it'll be nothing that will go beyond the surface of our lives into our heart and into our soul where the, where the, the very uh, eye of God will pierce into what we are and what we, what, what, how we exist. Because sometimes we've, we've made God that, that small. Can I give you, and I'm sorry for this, because uh, I know there's some people who don't like me giving football illustrations. Uh, but it's all I know. Uh, and um, some, very rarely uh, will I go now to a football game expectant. Now, people might say that's because of the team I support. But uh, of one, maybe one player being absolutely special. And you know, sometimes when that's the case, you go to a game or you watch a game and there's one player who's a standout. And you expect every time, you know, you hear the commentators speak about it. So every time he gets in the ball, there's a buzz of expectation around the ground. 
Because they expect him to do something, something special, something different. And maybe that, that's what we're looking for. That's what I'm looking for again in, our, in my relationship with God. Each time that we open Scripture, there's a buzz of expectation that God is going to speak into my need, that He's going to speak into what I have to understand and what, what can I learn about this sovereign, everlasting, eternal, immortal God who has come in the flesh. What does that look like? How can that be? How is there not absolute amazement each time we think about this uh, God who, as it were, empties himself into humanity on our behalf? I hope this chapter helps us a little bit uh, think about him. One of the worst things I ever heard about, and I'm not going to say what it happened, uh, and I'm not going to, this is not a football-related illustration, but it did happen at a football ground uh, where I was, uh, it was a Christian um, uh, rally, really, I guess. There was an evangelistic speaker, and it was an open air, and there was well, thousands of people there. Uh, and I was on the stage because uh, I was doing the opening prayer. And the guy who was leading it uh, stood up and saw everyone. And I'm sure he meant it absolutely genuine. I'm sure he was excited by what he saw. He said, oh, it's great to see everyone here. I think we should have three cheers for Jesus. And so we did a hip hip hooray for Jesus. Now, I, maybe it's my doer Presbyterian kind of background. I kind of cringed when I heard that. And uh, I've always cringed when I've heard that. Because I think sometimes that's what we think. We kind of give a hurrah for Jesus. And it's three cheers for Jesus. And it's a bit like what the crowd were thinking about here. At the, what is entitled, what I would say wrongly, is the triumphal entry. It wasn't a triumphal entry. The, the triumph was on the cross. There was nothing triumphal about what happened, really, as he entered into Jerusalem. But the crowds, it was a bit like that for them. They were basically saying, three cheers for Jesus! This is day one of Passion Week, but it was also the time of the Passover. And the pilgrims were flocking to Jerusalem, and the buzz, the word had got around that there was a Messiah who was going to come, and he was going to be king. And he was going to free them from Roman oppression. He would be on the throne. Now, I've heard, you've heard all this before. Be on the throne in Jerusalem. And he would redeem them from the kind of poverty and uh, the, uh, the, the oppressive rule of the Romans. And they would know peace in the land and happiness in their lives. Three cheers for Jesus. That's who he's going to come. That's who he's going to be. And that's what they were expecting. Hosanna, we're told. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming uh, kingdom of our father David. He was, the, he was the, the greater David. They knew their Old Testaments. They knew about what was happening in the Old Testament uh, and what it was pointing towards. And so they thought Jesus was going to be this new king on the throne. Three cheers for Jesus' happiness. So... But aren't you surprised, if you've been here for the number of weeks we've looked at Mark, aren't you surprised by what happens here? Is that Jesus asks for a donkey to ride in, in the public eye. Now, all the way up till here, Jesus has been saying, don't say anything. Don't tell anyone. Don't make it public. Don't speak about me. And here, at this point, he says, yeah. I'll take the adulation. I'll be right at the center of attention. It's time to draw attention to myself in public. And in, a, in one way, he's, he's, he's definitely saying, I am the Messiah. And there's times I'm going to look at the Old Testament today and I want you to follow, follow me because it's important. It's important we see the links between the Old Testament prophecies 
and Jesus coming. So in Zechariah chapter 9, and this will be a real test of your Bible knowledge, going to the Old Testament minor prophets, real test of mine as well, in the, in the pressure I've been up the front. Zechariah 9 chapter 9. We have this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's the kind of prophetic message that many of them would have known about and would have thought was being fulfilled and indeed was being fulfilled here as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And his entry into Jerusalem in this way is full of Old Testament fulfillment and symbolism. It's exactly what the Old Testament was pointing towards. Jesus coming into the city as the Messiah. I'm your Messiah. That's what he's crying out. That's what these verses speak about. He is the Messiah of Old Testament prophecy. Why does that matter? Well, it reminds us of the reliability of Scripture and of the fact that we have one message. We have one theme right from the beginning to Christ and the cross and one theme from Christ and the cross back in the New Testament. But he's also beginning to say, and we can see it because we have Scripture in front of us, I am not your king. Or I'm not the king you expect. Yes, I ride in on the coal, uh, uh, the foal of a donkey, a colt. I ride in and you put palms before me. And you say, this is the great Jesus. And she says, but I'm not your king. This is not me coming in triumph, wearing white clothes as the resplendent king with an army behind me. It's not your idea. Don't give me the three cheers for Jesus right now because this isn't the end. There's an unfolding revelation in this Passion Week of the kind of king Jesus was and the kind of king Jesus was to be. He's the king that's coming to destroy a temple, which we'll see in a a moment. He's a, a king who would go on to wear a crown, but it would be a crown of thorns. And it's a king who would be hailed as a king, but in mockery by the Roman soldiers, the ones that they hoped he would be disposing of. And he would be raised up, but it wouldn't be onto a throne, it would be onto a cross. See, that's the difference. And they would have been, and were, as the week went on, I'm kind of jumping forward a little bit, shocked by this Jesus. It's not the Jesus they expected. It was not the Jesus that they were looking for. It wasn't the Jesus they thought was the Jesus of Old Testament prophecy, the Messiah. There was a very famous song in the 80s, made famous again in this decade by Johnny Cash, called uh, Your Own Personal Jesus by Depeche Mode. And I think sometimes that's what we've got to come to terms with and face, that we, like the people here in the crowd, have a danger of wanting our own personal Jesus, one who is, fits our own thinking, our own comfort, and our own happiness, but isn't the Jesus that is revealed in Scripture. And it's time for us again in our lives to be shocked by him. To be shocked that he isn't content to just rub skin deep into our lives and comfort us and give us all sometimes that our sinful nature wants 
But he is the king. And he's the king of kings. And he's the king who comes, becomes the king through the cross. I want you to challenge yourself as I have to challenge myself. Are you, do you just have a comfortable Jesus? You know, a Sunday morning Jesus. An easy Jesus. A Jesus who will bless you. A Jesus who will give you what you want. A Jesus you're willing to lay palm leaves down before as long as he's your Messiah and your, your understanding of Messiah. What kind of king is Jesus in your life? What does it mean that he's king? What does kingship mean to people who come from uh, uh, cultures like our own in, in many ways uh, that, that don't really have a sovereign king over them? What kind of king do we believe Jesus to be? Are we imbibing society's Jesus? The Jesus of the press? The Jesus of popular thinking? The Jesus of political correctness? Are we quite content to be just part of the Christian crowd as this crowd were happy to be? Great to be in church on Sunday. Wonderful to enjoy these things. Love the society. Love the friendship. Love the happiness. Love the hospitality. Love the feel-good factor. But is that as far as... And I'm not saying any of these things are... These things are great. We, we long and we've, we've molded and we've, we've, we've worked for that in the church. But not as if that's all there is. It must be because there's something different. Because I'm asking you the question, I have to ask myself, will you walk with them to the cross? But this crowd didn't do that. They wanted a certain type of Messiah, and when they saw he wasn't going to be, they, they completely turned on their heads and said, crucify him. Are we going to be Christians that take our understanding of King Jesus to the cross? Are we willing, in other words, to apply his kingship to the, the denial of ourselves, our sinful selves, and fall on our knees before him? Are we willing to say, Lord God, you are absolute. You are truth. You are to be feared. Do we fear God? And I don't mean, are we afraid of God in a kind of oppressive way? I mean in an awesome fear for who he is. For who he is. Or are we twisting him round our, our finger? Is he our pet saviour? Is he our saviour in a lead? Is he a saviour that we, we, he follows us rather than we follow him? And the moment things don't go right for us, and he's the different kind of Messiah, and he isn't on the throne in the way we thought he was, we ditch him. Or we accuse him. Or we turn against him. Amazed, uh, shocked, and uh, uh, marveling at his grace and his love. Because, it, you know, I'm sorry, but it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. What, the second question, I looked about three cheers for Jesus, which kind of encapsulate the first kind of thing I was hoping to say from this chapter. And what about religion? What about religion? Because the context here, and again, well, it doesn't say it so much here in the NIV, but it's, it's in our tip, typical thinking. It says here, Jesus clears the temple as a headline. But we'd often, we've, we'd often entitle this passage, the cleansing of the temple. Just as we would talk about the triumphal entry. It wasn't a triumphal entry. Nor was it the cleansing of a temple. Can I go back to the uh, last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. I'm giving you a clue. Verses 1 to 2. It's on page 961, just to speed things along.
See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom I desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? So this is a prophecy It speaks about the messenger, John the Baptist. Then it speaks about the Lord coming. And he comes to his temple. And he comes, but he comes in judgment. Who can endure the day of his coming? He's not coming here in terms of Old Testament prophecy to clean the temple from its bad religious practice. See, the temple had become something it was never intended to be. Uh, Can I get you again? I don't do this often, but I want you to do this today. Jeremiah chapter 7. I'll tell you the page so that it moves us on. Jeremiah chapter 7 and uh, and verse 11. It's on page 764. I'll read from verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in my house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Okay, so the problem wasn't that they were doing the rituals wrong. It was that they were abusing the whole place. They were using it as a crude confessional. They were living any old way they liked outside of the temple. And then they were coming into the temple and offering their sacrifices and confessing their sins before God and thinking that that would make them right before God. There was no prayer. There was no repentance. It was an end in itself. It was a religious ritual. They did these religious things, and they thought that would please God. And the religion, the temple itself, the institution, became the means of salvation. So it became the center of political life, the center of economic life, and it became the center of religious life. It was a sacred cow. Because it became the salvation. It was never meant to be that. It became a tool for power. And it was spiritually disastrous because God was absent from that. The temple was always meant to to point towards something that was still to come. It was meant to point towards the need for forgiveness and repentance and the need to depend on, on God. But that had far been removed. So Jesus didn't come just to put that right and say, let's make the temple worship right. Let's reform things. Let's have a disruption and and do things differently and get back to praying and offering sacrifices properly. No, he didn't do that. He came to destroy, to search and destroy. We're told that he comes into Jerusalem and uh, there's a kind of a bit of an anticlimax. He looks at the temple and around Jerusalem and he goes home to bed. But then he comes back the next day. And you know the story of what he does. And he, he kind of he rips everything up in that temple. And uh, the crowd were amazed at what he did. And the religious leaders wanted him dead. Because they knew he wasn't talking about reform. He was talking about something much more radical. And uh, he had come to destroy that uh, temple. Because he was wanting the people to know and to understand that religion and ritual cannot ever make us right with God. Religious observance, man-made religion, is offensive in God's eyes. Church attendance as a means of justifying ourselves before God. Bible reading to please Him. 
prayer to offer and tell him how good we are will have no effect with God. I want to read you a great section. If I can find it from Amos chapter 5, verse 21. 920, page 920. Listen to this. Listen to this. It's amazing. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I can't stand your assemblies. I hope that's not in relation to the coming fortnight. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river. Righteousness like a never-ending stream. That is class. That is absolutely what the gospel is all about. Justice and righteousness. And stuff all the religious things that go on. Uh, if that is what uh, you're taking to make you right with God. And Jesus uh, nails it here with the, uh, what he does with the fig tree. Now there's a lot of bleating liberals, uh, and I, I take that loosely, who say it's terrible what he's done that. What did, what did the fig tree do wrong? The fig tree didn't do it wrong. It wasn't even in season. And yet he curses the fig tree because it didn't bear fruit. It wasn't even in season. What kind of Jesus is that? He's a bit harsh. What about the fig tree? Poor fig tree. You know, some things are more important than fig trees. And he's symbolizing something very important. It's, it's, it's in between what happens at the temple because he's trying to explain, trying to make clear uh, what is happening uh, with what he is doing. It says um, that the temple, that the fig tree didn't bear fruit because it wasn't in season. If I can find that... Um, yeah, in verse uh, 13 it says, when they reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it wasn't the se- was not the season for figs. Now, uh, according to those who are Greek scholars, that's not the usual word that's used for a uh, tree being in season. But it's the word that's used in chapter 1, 14 and 15 where God says the time has come. The season has come, in other words. So it uses a different word to remind us that there's something symbolic about what's happening. It's not normal. And he's saying, look, religious ritual, going to church, doing things at the surface level, cannot bear spiritual fruit. It can never be the answer. The temple and what it symbolized as a way back to God, being religious, is not the answer. It's not possible for you to make... The temple was never meant to bring people to God. It It was... a temporary measure to point them towards the fact that there needed to be a saviour. A blood of goats and of lambs never takes away sins. But it was that Jesus was to come. There was a saviour to come. And they had made it worse even. They had just made it a crude confessional. They made it just an outward religion. It never touched their hearts. It never came near to their sins. It never came near to their behaviour and to their confession. They never fell on their knees before the living God. Jesus says, I've come to destroy this. Not to cleanse it. I've come to destroy it. Christ becomes the temple. And uh, when he finishes his work on the cross, the curtain is opened from the Holy of Holies from top to bottom because the way into God's presence and the way into relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. It was never through the temple. It was never through religion. You will not ever be able to stand on the last day and stand before God and say, I want to get entry into heaven because I'm free church because I, I'm religious 
because I'm a religious... I'd be happy if you say to everyone that you're not religious because it has such a, a negative tone with people anyway today. It's so pejorative for most people. Religion isn't the way to God. Being moral isn't the way to God. Being in church isn't the way to God. Being in church is the place where we worship the God who has died in our place and that we accept his righteousness. And what Jesus shows in this, uh, this passage, really, when he responds to Peter, who talks about the withered tree, Jesus reminds us of what, or he gives us a glimpse of, of what our hope is. He says, have faith in God. Pray and recognize forgiveness. That's what that section is pointing towards what he has come to do. Have faith in God, he says. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, he believes it will happen. This mountain, this mountain, this temple mountain of religion, this mountain of self-reliance, this mountain of self-dependence, this mountain of moral goodness, throw it into the sea and all the impossibility that goes with it and have faith in what a, a carpenter from Nazareth who is the son of God did when he was nailed to a tree. Have faith in him. Broken its power. Now today I'm going to give out uh, to several people who are leaving today the, the book The King's Cross by Tim Keller which is a study in the book of Mark which is what we've been going through. And read the, I ask those who I give it to and I encourage everyone else to get it, read the introduction. Because it talks all about the fact that people are beginning to recognize, again, even in secular America and society of the UK, that uh, it must come back to the this crucified, risen Savior. There's nothing else. It's not old-fashioned. It's not a way. It's not fundamentalist. It's just the only way there is. Faith in God, characterized by a life of prayer, as he says there, you know, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you've received it, it will be yours. This relationship, this access. You know, that's what offended God so much that this temple had been a house of prayer for all nations and it had been abandoned. People had stopped. There was no conversation. Where's your conversation with God? Where's mine? You know, that's what Jesus died to procure. Open, free, 24-7 access into his presence uh, where we can come before a friend. The living God who becomes those who hate sin and who transform us from the inside out. And we need that life of prayer in order to do that. Can I just say one thing about prayer? Uh, I'm being very technical and biblical and... Not biblical. I hope I'm always biblical. But um, uh, kind of quoting books and using books today, you'd think I never used them. But there's this great commentary called the NIV Application Commentary, which I've been using all the time um, uh, for this series. And he kind of goes... He just... Uh, goes on a little side about prayer and he says a lovely thing about prayer here and how important prayer is his name is David Garland the community needs to pray receptively he's talking about prayer and how important it is prayer is not imposing our will on God but, God op but, but opening our lives to God's will true prayer is not an endeavour to get God to change his will but an endeavour to re release that will in our own lives now this is a great bit and it's a great visual bit so remember it and it will help you. Prayer is like a boat hook that a boatman uses to pull the craft to its anchoring place. The boatman doesn't try to pull the shore to the boat, but the other way around. Isn't that a great picture? That the boatman in his boat on the edge of the water doesn't try and bring the, the universe to him, the, the shore to him, in order to, 
to uh, be secure. But rather, as he puts the rope out, he pulls the boat towards the shore to its security. And that is what prayer is. We are drawing ourselves to God, not trying to pull God down to us. Jesus provides an example of this receptive praying in Gethsemane, where he boldly entreats God, but concludes, not what I will, but what what your will be done. That prayer is bringing us towards God, not as seeking to change God to give us what we want. It's faith in God, a life of prayer. And as he says here, true religion is characterized by forgiveness. You stand praying if you have anyone against him, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. These are titbits towards true faith and what faith is and what he's come to do. In destroying ritual religion, he wants this relationship based on faith, based on prayer, and based on a, an attitude and a lifestyle of forgiveness. See, if we've been forgiven ourselves, it changes how we think about other people. Religion leaves us self-righteous, judgmental, and arrogant, doesn't it? I'm better than other people. I'm doing my best. God will accept me. Grace is recognizing that we stifle and deal with criticism and gossip and ignorance and lovelessness. And we are forgiving. We are slow to condemn others. We are quick to seek forgiveness for ourselves. Grace thinks twice. Grace is shocking. Grace is shattering. Grace is exciting. Grace is surprising. Grace is amazing. These people were amazed. It doesn't say that they followed him, but they were amazed by what he did in the temple. They didn't say, oh, this is great. The Messiah is coming. Look what he's doing. I think they were beginning to realize, wait a minute. He's going to break what we rely on. And if you're to become, if you're not a Christian today and you're to become a Christian, he's saying the same, the same, you may have the same fears today. He's going to break what I've trusted in for a long time. But can I say it's worth it? And there is nothing else. He has come to destroy religion. And this is to be a community of forgivers to one another, of grace, of faith, and of prayer. And if we're not that, we're nothing. If we're hospitable and kind and nice and good and generous, but if we are not gracious in forgiving and in prayer and in faith, we are nothing. Now, I simply don't have time to speak about Jesus' response to the cynics in the last section here, the authority of Jesus' question, but can I just finish by saying sometimes you need to answer a question with a question. That's what Jesus did here to those who weren't genuinely seeking salvation. They were wanting to trip him up. Now you might find in your week this week that there'll be people who want to trip you up in your faith. They're not genuinely looking for salvation. They're not asking openly about Jesus. But they just want to make a fool of you. They want to trip you up. And they might ask you a very difficult question. Can I suggest that you learn sometimes to answer a question like that with a question. You don't need to answer them. But challenge them. Put the question back to them. Challenge them about their preconceptions. Because that's what Jesus did. And we're here to do what Jesus does. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, help us to follow you and to understand you and to love you. May we be uh, shocked by you and... uh, amazed by you and may we not be just complacent may it be that we come here and we seek and know and recognize 
that uh, we are to be moved and uh, changed by you every day. Uh, each time we open scripture, that we are to be expectant and looking to be transformed and molded and moved to become more like Jesus Christ. And this week that we've entered, may we live with more forgiveness. We will be challenged on it this week. There will be opportunities for us to be forgiving and not to be uh, judgmental or not to be um, brutal. Help us to be forgiving. There will be times when we are asked to display faith, when it will be easier to sin and walk uh, walk away from God and not have faith. And Lord, we will all know, I think to a greater or lesser degree, how easy it is to be prayerless, to go to bed prayerless, to rise prayerless, to face the challenges and problems and uh, opportunities of the day prayerless. But he has come to change that by his grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may that be our experience this week. And may we do nothing, uh, trust in nothing less but Jesus' cross and righteousness. So help us God. Amen.